You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. It's really um, a joy for me to be able to do this, and I'm also humbled that I have the opportunity. Today, I invite you to join me as we look uh, at the book of Ephesians. Now, what we call the book of Ephesians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Some of you are probably too young to remember how important letters are. (laughs) You know... We're such a quick email kind of society culture now, but there was a time when when you got a letter, oh, this is wonderful. And uh, so this is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it was mostly likely written while he was under house arrest in Rome around 61 AD. Because it doesn't address any specific problems, and uh, at least that can be traced to a particular congregation, And plus the fact that there are so many, there's such limited personal references in the letter. Many scholars agree that this letter was not intended exclusively for the Ephesians. Uh, More than likely, it would be what is called a circular or cyclical uh, letter written to many churches. uh, With Ephesus being the largest and perhaps Ephesus was the first to receive it. This letter contains some of the worst news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And this letter contains the very best news. But God made us alive with Christ. It has been heralded as an anthem to the sovereign grace of God. Grace displayed towards sinners in Christ. But it also calls its readers in view of this salvation by grace to walk worthy of the calling they have received. Ephesians is divided into two parts with the first three chapters being doctrinal. Here, Paul writes about who they are in Christ and how they came to be in Christ. In these first three chapters, Paul's goal is for them to understand that God's wisdom His glory and his power are displayed in his eternal purpose for the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And that meant a lot. Jews and Gentiles, both reconciled in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are practical. Here, Paul writes about how they should live now that they understand what God has done and what he is doing in their lives. 
Please follow along. I'd like to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and it's, in the, it's in, on page 976. I just looked it up in the church Bible, if you're using that one, 976. Ephesians chapter 1, and please follow as I read verses 1 to 14. I would like you to know that verses 3 through 14 in the Greek are one sentence. If, you'll, if you notice, I think Paul got started and just couldn't stop. We do have some endings in our translation, but in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 are one long sentence of praise. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, as we begin who are in Ephesus, in Ephesus was actually not, is not found in a lot of the uh, early manuscripts. And that's why it's kind of decided perhaps this was more of a circular letter. Grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Oh God, I just submit myself to you and I pray that God, um, you would use me this morning. May the words be pleasing to you. Give us insight together as we look at your word. Protect us from error, O God. Cause us to have understanding in things that we do not understand. Quicken us to hear you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians, uh, or Ephesus, was a port city in Western Asia Minor. We would know it today as Turkey, Pastor Brunson just came from there. 
It was the capital city of its region with a very large population, more than likely in the hundreds of thousands. And as the most important port on the main route from Rome to the east, Ephesus was a a thriving center for all things commercial, political, and religious. You see, Ephesus was the location for the temple of Artemis, Diana, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, but it wasn't just a sight to behold. The temple of Artemis was a place for pagan worship. It was complete with prostitute priestesses and other occult practices. And it was in the midst of this culture, these practices, that Paul began to preach the gospel of Christ. And according to the book of Acts, God used the ministry of Paul in a great way. As a matter of fact, Paul was so effective, it really started to cause a stir. Many, hearing the gospel proclaimed, were coming to belief in Christ. And they actually decided to burn all of their magic arts books, while according, which according to Luke was worth 50,000 days wages. If you got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19. Let's kind of look at what was happening there. Acts 19, beginning at verse 18. Acts 19, beginning at 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, it's to these Christians, it's to these people saved from this pagan background that Paul is writing this letter. This letter that we know as Ephesians. And in this letter, he's going to remind them and ultimately remind us that God wants us to know and understand who we are in Christ. And he wants us to know and understand how we, how they became to be in Christ. And now how they and how we are to live as those who are in Christ. Today, I'd like to look uh, at the first two verses, and I want us to give consideration to the apostle, the saints, and God's grace. The apostle, verse, the first part of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
It's interesting that the first thing Paul shares in his letter is to tell them who he is in Christ and how he came to be that way. He doesn't list his training. He doesn't list his Hebrew background. He doesn't list his many accomplishments. He doesn't list any other credentials. He just states the facts, who he is in Christ, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and how he came to be that way, by God's will. Paul wasn't always Paul. No, his given name was Saul. He was a Jew born into the tribe of Benjamin, proudly named after the first king of Israel. He had been trained as a Pharisee by a famous rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. Paul was very religious. His intentions and efforts were sincere. His training under that rabbi was the finest available. He, he was a good Pharisee who knew the scriptures and sincerely believed that this new Christian movement was dangerous to Judaism. He was a committed Pharisee, and because of his great commitment as a Pharisee, he found himself advancing in Judaism. And he became more and more passionate for his ancestors' traditions, passionate to the extent that he not only approved, but was present when the Jewish leader stoned Stephen to death. And soon he found himself ravaging the church, entering homes, dragging off believers, both men and women, to be put in prison or put to death. But God had other plans for Saul. Two important words, but God. And one day, as Saul was on his way from Damascus, he wanted to bring any Christians from that city bound to Jerusalem. God's sovereignty intervened in Saul's life. And he is literally stopped in his tracks. Acts 9 tells us about how it happened. I want you to follow along. It's in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belongings to the way, those who are believers in Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Oh, I bet they did. Stand speechless. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So physically, he was blinded. But spiritually, his eyes were opened. Now we got to stop here and kind of unpack this a little bit because Saul wasn't looking to change his life. He wasn't dissatisfied with his life. He wasn't dissatisfied with Judaism. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to Philippians chapter 3, you might say, I like what the, the Holcomb Christian Standard Bible, how it's referred to in, in Philippians 3, beginning at, uh, I think it's verse 5. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. A Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul wasn't looking for a change. He seemed quite pleased with the way things were. He had no problems opposing Christ Jesus. He had no problem opposing the gospel. That is until until that day on the road to Damascus. On that day, Paul met Christ Jesus and his life would never be the same. For it was in the encounter with Christ, the revelation came to him that he had been set apart even before his birth by the sovereign will of God for a purpose. And this is somewhat ironic. The purpose to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially to the Gentiles. This is made clear. We see it when Paul wrote to the Galatians. He wrote, He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That day on the Damascus Road, Paul's life completely changed. Even his name. He was Saul. All of a sudden, he became Paul. Now, there's different understandings of how that came to be. Some say that perhaps his name was Saul for the Hebrew, and he was given the name Paul for Greek, even by his family. There are those who would say Paul was chosen because, remember when he said, I am the least of these, the least of the saints? Well, Paul means little. 
So perhaps that's the reason he, has, he got the name Paul. But everything changed. A group of people he formerly despised, he now loved with a passion. Paul must have been one of those guys who always just lived his life with fierce intensity. But once he met Christ, that intensity was channeled for the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul worked hard to convince the Jews that the Gentiles were acceptable to God. But he even spent more time convincing the Gentiles that they were now acceptable to God. Why would they believe him? In chapter 2 of this letter, called the Ephesians, Paul writes to those believers there in that region of Ephesus, and he is also writing to you and I. These glorious words. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, if you want to turn there real quick, it's just a page over. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, Paul writes, this is wonderful, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The apostle. Let's move on to the saints. The last part of verse 1 says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The first thing we see that Paul calls these people, these Gentiles, these former pagans, to whom he is writing this letter, he calls them saints. Saints. You know, there's a real misconception as to the biblical meaning of the word saints. That those who are saints are some kind of a special, higher order of Christian, reserved for only those who have accomplished extraordinarily good works or lived a perfected life. Leaves me out. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The word saints, hagias, in Greek refers to those set apart by God for God. So those called saints in the scriptures are not saints because of their own doing. They are saints because of what Christ has done on their behalf. And they are now set apart for him and for his service. That same Greek word, hagios, also includes the idea of taking something filthy, washing it, and setting it apart as something brand new and using for a different purpose, like the Apostle Paul. How fitting for the Apostle Paul. Scripture declares that those who are set apart by God for himself in his son, Jesus Christ, are called saints. Spurgeon comments that we are chosen not because we are holy, but that we might be made holy. In Ephesians 1.4, of what we've already read today, 
We see even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. So the Bible teaches that sainthood is not an attainment, not some kind of status that we earn by performing good deeds. But being a saint is a state into which God, by grace, through faith, calls men and women from all stations of life. Being a saint has nothing to do with your degree of spiritual maturity, but refers to everyone who is saved. For everyone who knows salvation is set apart for God himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And God, because, and because of what God has done, he now sees them as he sees his son, as those who have been sanctified, meaning consecrated, purified, made holy. That's how he sees them. That's how he sees us. As one who's, who, ones who have been sanctified, consecrated, purified, made holy in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling. Sadly, there are times when many of those called saints fail to think or act saintly. Can anyone else identify? <laughs> However, as genuine believers, because of what God has done, their designation or our designation as saints is independent of behavior because it refers to their identity, their position in Christ, our position in Christ. Look at the last phrase of that, the last part of that phrase, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. We're still at verse one there, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, meaning all that is true of him becomes true of them. All that is true of him becomes true of us. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. So when you get there, look for 30 and 31. This really helps us to just pinpoint and to make that declaration right there. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, we read, And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Now, look at what this is telling us. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. And what did he become? Wisdom righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So when we see they are faithful in Christ Jesus, why are they faithful? 
because they are in Christ Jesus. One final thought before we move on. When the Bible speaks of faithfulness, God, because he is perfect, is always faithful. God always does what he says he will do. And be assured, if we've trusted him and correctly stood upon his word, and he has not moved yet, he is faithful. It's just not time for him to move. But when it comes to people like you and me, we are not perfect. May surprise some of us. I've known a few people who would be surprised, but scripture still calls us to be people who are dependable to do what God says to do. People to do what God tells us to do when we become aware of it. Consider David. David, known in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. Did that mean he was perfect? That answer would be no. He committed adultery and then took the woman's husband and had him murdered in battle. So how can he be called a man after God's own heart? Here's how. When confronted with his sin, he confessed. He repented. And when we read Psalm 32 and when we look at Psalm 51, we see a man dealing with repentance. He repented before God, confessed his sin, and turned back to God's way. Sometimes faithfulness is more clearly seen after failure when we've messed up. The bottom line is that any ability we have in the Christian life to be faithful before God is not of us. It's because we are in Christ Jesus. As a result of us being in him, he is in us. And faithfulness is a fruit of the spirit at work within us. If you look at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So it's the Spirit of God working in our lives that produces a consistency of faithfulness. It's not perfection. But when we get it wrong, we run to correct it and do what God has told us to do. The apostle, the saints, finally, let's consider God's grace. Let's look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so easy to simply read this greeting and move on. I mean, isn't it just a common greeting that we find Paul using over and over again? Yeah. But these few words, they pack a lot of meaning. 
You see, it's more than just a greeting. I once read no two words are more important in all of our faith than grace and peace. Yet how often do we read them or even say them and never stop to consider what they mean? Grace. God's favor toward the unworthy. The word grace is the word charis. It comes from the word charo, which means to rejoice. When we think of what God has done for us, should our hearts not want to rejoice? When we're going through the struggles of the daily life, in and out, being parents, being grandparents, old, young, all the things that come, and it starts to press in on us, and we go to his word, And we see again, grace. Do our hearts not rejoice because of what God has done for us and is doing for us and in us? We can rejoice because it is grace that forgives the sinner and brings joyfulness and thankfulness to the heart. It is grace that provides the ongoing, changing power of God. For grace doesn't stop once we're saved. It is his gracious gift to you and me the rest of our lives. For grace is the undeserved and unmerited favor of God, given expecting nothing in return. Grace is given freely to us, but it comes at a very high cost to God. Consider this statement. God does not forgive sin. He forgives sinners. God does not forgive sin. He forgives sinners. Was there a cost for our sin? Was there a price paid? Did God forgive our sin or was a debt paid? Yeah, sin had a very high price. And only because the price for our sin was paid by the Lord Jesus can we now receive something we do not deserve, grace. God's ongoing, enabling power in our lives, enabling us to overcome the world, overcome our flesh, and overcome the devil. In Philippians 2.13, it says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Grace does not provide a license for us to willfully disobey. Grace does not provide a license for us to live the way we want. You know what grace does? Grace gives us the power to live as we should. Grace to you and peace from, our, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, peace. Isn't that a wonderful word? Oh, peace. There were days in our household when the kids were young, and people would come visit us, and they would say, doesn't that noise bother you? And we're like, what noise? You become so accustomed to all that. But peace, oh, such a wonderful word. Note that grace is listed first. Grace, 
and then peace. Think about it. We can only walk in peace with God when we have known, understood, and experienced firsthand the grace of God. It's only because of God's grace, because Christ has come and reconciled us to God, that we now have peace. Access to perfect, promised peace. Instead of being our judge, God now becomes our Father, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Rather than running from God because we want to hide from our sins, and because we fear his judgment, we can draw near to God with hearts washed clean. Instead of running our own lives and promoting our own interests, we now find ourselves wanting to submit our lives, seeking to do the will of God. Peace with the holy God is really the basic need of every sinner. How wonderful it's what we receive at salvation. Theologian John Eady wrote a poem, or I guess it's really just a paragraph, but it says, Grace is the fountain out of which peace is the stream. Grace is the fountain out of which peace is the stream. Because we have grace from God, we have peace with God. And can daily experience the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. I know you've been there. The trials, the situations, the circumstances have come. But somehow, in the midst of all that, his peace is with us. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is more than just a greeting. Think about it. What God did for the apostle. He also did it for the saints. And it's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. You know, once God has intervened in our lives and rescued us from sin, once our eyes have been opened to see the beauty of God who offered himself to be the substitute for our sins, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior and Lord, we are now saints. We, we are a holy one set apart to God. And today, we are in Christ Jesus. As we live our lives in him by faith, through grace, may we abide in his perfect peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us your word and then for drawing us unto yourself, for opening our eyes to your truth. Thank you for your promises. But most importantly, thank you that they are true. May we walk today as we understand and know that we are in you and you are in us. Be glorified in our lives, we pray, O oh God. Amen.